0: Welcome to some Derp's Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango.
1: And I'm your co-host, Buddy.
0: And today we're going to talk a little bit about crowdfunding. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast.
1: On this podcast, we like to talk uh, about games. Today, I guess, is a little bit... You know, off-color, because we're talking kind of more about the business side, the industry uh, side, rather than, like, actually breaking down, you know, mechanics and stuff like that. But, uh, I don't know, it's all important stuff, I feel like, to the yeah. overall culture.
0: Yeah, uh, before we get too much further, um, uh, we're, we're recording this without playing it, but you should hear a new theme song, theme song at the beginning of the episode. Shout out to our, our friend uh, friend of the show, Vince Roland, for that. We'll have a link to, I guess, his Twitter in the description, but I wanted Thank to. Thank you, Vince. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's amazing stuff. Um, but yeah, on to onto the topic at hand. Um, crowdfunding. Now, now, buddy, you had you, if I remember correctly, had a particular reason for wanting to bring this up today. So, why don't you go into that a little bit? So,
1: um, it it kind of came up, I guess, because uh, two big big crowdfunding projects. Have kind of like hit the scene again. The first is the Banner Saga three, uh, which is done by Stoic Studios, and then of course uh, Pillars of Eternity two by Obsidian. Um, these guys are kind of veterans in the kind of uh, in the in the crowdfunding sphere, and the and the industry has reacted. Pretty positively to their their initial outings, right? Banner Saga was my favorite game of 2014. Obviously, uh, Pillars of Eternity has really been really well regarded by by plenty of folks. Um, even though I guess it's technically published distributed by by Paradox as well, uh, but it also kind of like like kept up this thing in my Twitter and on Reddit and stuff about whether or not these companies should be crowdfunding. Uh, the kind of argument seems to go that the Banner Saga 1 and 2, uh, that the various outings uh, from Obsidian uh, using using crowdfunding should have been enough to kind of launch them into a self-sustaining cycle of kind of development. And that they're, them going back to crowdfunding is... Bad, essentially. Crowdfunding is where you're, you know, you're kind of supposed to pick up and go with small-scale projects that, you know, you know, the, the, like, the riskier ventures than the third sequel to two very successful crowdfunded games, or the second sequel from an extremely well-regarded and trusted studio, um... And so, uh, and then of course the backlash to that where it's like, no, they're well within their rights and they definitely should be crowdfunding. This is just a new business model. We all need to kind of deal with it and, uh, and kind of, uh, work with it in the long haul. And so I was actually wondering, cause you and I have talked a lot about other stuff on the show, you know, DLC, free to play, that kind of stuff. Um, where do you come down on this whole crowdfunding? You know, how, when is it appropriate to, not appropriate to? Are there there rules or limitations that you'd like to see? Anything, anything along those lines? So,
0: okay, so so in kind of a very general sense, um, I'm kind of um, against someone like uh, 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 like Kickstarter themselves kind of passing down rules in, in this kind of uh, avenue. I, I kind of want um the like 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 people like the market to be in control of that but th- that's just kind of like how I generally feel about most things um but in terms of like what I think is is like uh like oh, what's the word I want to use um like correct and like moral I guess I feel like that word's a little bit strong um but like I think that there are definitely times when crowdfunding is appropriate I think when you're an independent publisher or not an independent, an independent company and you're looking to get a game out without having to deal with the Faustian deal that is publishers i think it can be appropriate um i think some of the efforts we've seen by um say by like obsidian by um uh 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 uh, let, what's the group? Uh, the 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 Japanese developer bata- behind uh, Castlevania and Mega Man going to Kickstarter so they can do their own games without being under the yoke of publishers. I think that's okay. Um, although we can see that it doesn't work out. Mighty Number no. Nine being one example where the game wasn't at great quality. But I think that I I don't think every game needs to be a home run on Kickstarter. And why well, like like I don't think the existence of bad Kickstarter games means that. Something needs to change about it, if that makes sense. Um, I do think, however, that there are times when it gets a little iffy. Like I've seen, like um, I think it was Hairbrained did one of their shadowing games. I want to say um, they they essentially had funding for the core game and they did a Kickstarter for all for stretch goals only, and I thought that was interesting. Um, and I thought that was fine because it's um, because they were very upfront about exactly what was happening. But then you get into areas where like, um, you know, uh, Square Enix um, kind of t- it proposed something similar. I don't think, know if they ever followed through on it, but it was more kind of like pre-sales to test the waters of, of like how a game would be received. And I don't know if I'm OK with that. Like, I'm not OK if I, I'm OK with like a big publisher coming to kickstarter so they essentially hedge their risk um
1: that's my, my that's my biggest thing right? Like i don't just think to, sh- yeah just to put a finger on this uh you're talking about the the deus ex mankind divided pre-order order system which was basically um as more and more people pre-ordered that game more and more things were unlocked no, that is not for what i'm talking about that is not what i'm so, talking okay.
0: about okay i okay th- sorry sorry can you just so so I, I I forget the details. So forgive me for for it being uh, sketchy. But they, I think Square Enix at one point announced essentially their own crowdfunding platform, and they were going to put titles on there that were essentially older titles that had a big fan base, but not necessary, but like you know didn't have any development plans currently, and they were going to use that to kind of like, um. Essentially, essentially gather pre-orders pre-orders before development. So that they could, like, prove that it was worth oh, all the time invested. Okay,
1: this is from a couple of years ago. I do remember this. This was... Um, so this actually wasn't an announcement. It was just, a, like, somebody made a, made a remark um, about it. Uh, the The Square Enix Europe CEO, Phil Rogers, technically my boss. Uh, well, not my boss, but uh, adjacent to... I, I don't work in that department, but uh, ju- I work at Square Enix. This is the point. Anyway, <laughs> um... Uh, he said something uh, which seems to say, "I would love to try and work with crowdfunding to find a way because ultimately we want to satisfy the demands of fans." And this is in regards to uh, typically Japanese games that don't get a localization. Um, you know, some of the I don't know. I, I'm sure there are examples that people can can think of. Um, so that's not something that you would be okay with, is? Um. So, so the the thing that bothers me about
0: those and, and and there there have been similar moves by um that have been generally derided by larger like uh, publisher like people who don't need to crowdfund using crowdfunding as essentially like risk mitigation and that to me is not great right like okay l- like I understand that what well, at least my my understanding when I by back at Kickstarter, and this this should be everybody's understanding, although I know that doesn't always go this way, is that I'm essentially taking a bet on, like, something that I find interesting with the understanding that it might fall apart. Um, and so, kind of, seeing a large company who has the means to fund the game regularly, but kind of using either Kickstarter or, or their own platform, or, or some form of this to kind of mitigate their risk feels worse to me. Like it, it feels kind of like they're asking, especially if they're like gating a, a game behind, they're asking players to put out their money, not, you know, like a month ahead of time as is typical with regular play orders, but like, you know, years ahead of time before development even starts. Um, and I Okay, th-
1: so to kind of play a little devil's advocate to this, sure. um, because I actually kind of don't really know where I come down on it. I think the pro argument for this is that there are a lot of titles that do or uh, don't... You know, like, a lot of titles that have very vocal fans but might not necessarily kind of have the appeal to a larger audience. And I kind of think, uh, you know, on a, on a certain sense, I almost trust the, the kind of business development people, you know, like the producers, the project managers who are saying, you know, I'm sure... You know, like, I know there's a loyal fame base for, I don't know, Banjo-Kazooie 3, right? Um, But we don't actually, you know, like, we don't actually know that there's enough there, there's enough support there to warrant making, you know, making that game. Why don't we ask fans to put their monies where their mouth is, right? And we'll be able to gauge off of that, right? So we'll ask for a pledge, you know... Whatever that pledge is, if they pledge sixty dollars, they get the game when it comes out. If we break a hundred thousand dollars, we will officially put the game into development with a guaranteed release date or whatever, right? Okay,
0: so 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 my issue with this, it's that, that's neat that you used Banjo Kazooie, because um I can point to Ukulele. Yeah, uh, I, think, well, I um, it may have been on my mind. Um, but uh, like, so the. The, essentially the, the promise there is that, or the, the problem I have is that <coughs> um, in, in my mind, at least the, the, this scenario is with a publisher and um, publishers, you know, aren't, you know, publishers are often kind of like seen as the devil. And I think there are some that are, that are bad. Um, I don't think they all are, but that's, that, that's kind of the nuance that I, that's not important at this moment, but essentially the benefit of Kickstarter in a lot of ways to me is that you go, um, you're able to bypass the publisher process, right? You're able to, okay, um, you're able to give the developer the freedom to do whatever they want. Like you say, you say to them, "Developer, I have faith in you to do this, um, and I'm going to put my money down there." Um, and then this instance where, like, it's I guess it's uh, it's Rare who's who's running the Kickstarter or, or Microsoft who's running the Kickstarter who will then administer the money to Rare. It's like I'm paying my money ahead of time, but I don't even give the developers the freedom to operate out, on, outside of like the, you know, the, 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 presence of the publisher. It's, it's just kind of like, like, I, I, I see your argument and, and I think it, it's, it's, uh, it's valid in some ways, but I think that publishers are supposed to be the guys that assume that risk
1: in the normal case, not the consumer. So I think, you know, there are plenty of times when they are willing to to assume that risk, right? Like, you know, okay, let's say that as a publisher, right, I have to cross X threshold of support, right? I have to cross 100,000 whatever units of support that make me confident in this project kind of thing, right? Hypothetically, an idea like this allows a publisher to lower that that standard to 75,000, to 50,000, right? Uh, Because they are much more able to kind of um you know they're much more able to gauge that support up front obviously um and so the benefit there is that now you know you don't actually have to try you know like now the development of uh banjo kazooie 3 isn't something that you bring that you bring to the publisher uh and they say uh, eh, you know we don't really think there's the support there for it because there's the the, the, the the entry level of support has just gone down and all the other games that are in that kind of banjo kazooie 3 space right now all of those are back on the table as well so in that case then
0: what's the value at like, like what's the value out of the publisher why, why are we sticking with the publisher
1: Well I don't think you can make a game I mean I don't think you can make a game like banjo kazooie on a hundred thousand dollars. Oh, so I mean, if you if like if you think you can entirely fund the project, I guess, you know, well, I mean, that,
0: that, that's that's the point. Right. Like that, that. That's that is what Kickstarters are. Right.
1: Right. 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 But my well, point so is so my point is the, like, let, let, to, to give you uh, the, I, I see what you're saying. Right. But if Banjo-Kazooie 3 costs, you know, five million dollars, one hundred thousand dollars all of a sudden isn't make or break. you know, it's. It's good money to show support. It's good money to show you, yep, there's a, there's a base there. There's people there who want to buy this game, right? But it's not actually enough to fund the game in its entirety. So all so that is kind of oh, an oh, advance so to the to, to the to the publisher to say, "Yes, we really want it." You, okay. do you see what I'm saying?
0: So 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 you're saying that um ukulele should be uh or not ukulele. Um uh, that, that the the publisher should be, um, should be essentially projecting for a lesser goal, like so. So a, a typical Kickstarter says this is the bare minimum we need to make the game, right, and we'll right, make right. it work from there. And yeah. in, in in your in your version, the publisher is saying this is like you know you know uh, let's say a quarter of what we need to make the game, but that's enough for us to believe that it's worth investing the money.
1: The the the, the extra seventy five percent essentially. Okay, you know I I think I can buy that. Um. I, yeah. To be honest, this is. In. Enti- I have nothing that says that this has ever happened. Or yeah. This yeah. is how people. But like, I'm trying to think of a way, like, where the line right. is and where how that might be palatable. What changes could be made in order to kind of break past your, your the moral break point that you're setting up. Yeah. No, I think That's pretty interesting. Yeah. No. I. I.
0: I think that's a fair point. I also think that's something that's slightly different than crowdfunding. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um. Like. Like in a weird way, like. Isn't that kind of a stock? You know what I mean. Like, I think there's a certain amount of, uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Like yeah. you could con- you. Like, are you? Bo- well, it's just the one project, right? And it's just not a very. Te- is it a temporary stock that is essentially being refunded to you in the value of a game two years later? You know what I mean? Like, I think you can make an argument that that's kind of what this is, um, which is weird. It's, it's, yeah. So, so the the other
0: danger there, I, I feel like is, um, maybe, maybe this isn't a real danger, but like, if publishers get in on the crowdfunding, and like you know, you see the the kind of dystopian future where every game that isn't a Call of Duty has to go through, um, has to go through crowdfunding vetting in order for it to, to come out when it's supposed to be a tool for people who wouldn't normally be able to put out these games to be able to to, to right. do that, um. And the other half of, of of that being that, like, um, like, if, w- what happens if a publisher fails to, like, mean it's Kickstarter, right? Like, that's a whole other can of, like, like if EA crowdfunds a game and it doesn't come out, that's a whole other deal than, like, if, you know, Sally and Joe, who work out of their basement, who tried really hard but just couldn't get it done, fail
1: that i i definitely agree with that and i think that there's also uh you know like other pieces to that right like (laughs) it's something that i actually think is harder to get done you would have to it's almost like because what happens when you know the developer starts missing milestones it gets delayed you know, like additional development costs accrue. That stuff puts it into a much more dangerous territory. And in a way, I'm kind of, kind of extrapolating the, uh, like, the principle behind how I look at pre-orders, right? Like, I've, I've, you know, I'm on record on the podcast as basically saying that pre-orders are an expression of a player's, you know, of an, an expression of my faith in a company and the products that they get done, right? You know, like I have faith that. Mass Effect Andromeda is going to be a game for me because Bioware has always made great games that I personally love. And so I don't mind throwing, you know, like I don't mind throwing in for, for the pre-order. Um, same thing with, you know, uh, you know, same thing with you know, Bethesda-developed RPGs like Skyrim or, uh, uh geez, I don't know. The uh, creative, uh, creative assembly, and you know these, uh, these total war games, right? Those might be the only, uh, those might be the only three. Um, but I don't trust, and I don't, you know, like I, like I don't trust. I don't know, Infinity Ward, or even like, even even well regarded studios like Respawn, right? Like I know people that work at Respawn, but you know I'm not gonna go pre-order Battle or titan titanfall 2 just because like it it hasn't built up that thing and so to a certain extent i feel like the publishers can just directly tap into that willingness to a certain extent like i i care this much about this property and i want to see it continue and i'm willing to say you know what starcraft 3 is that important to me blizzard right or warcraft 4 or diablo 4 you know whatever it is kind of thing um yeah I don't know I don't do I, I was also building that almost as a uh, like I want I want to emphasize that I was building that as a devil's advocate I don't really know where I fall on that yeah. scale it's pretty messy yeah, the, the other part of this that that, that kind of
0: scares me like, like that would scare like that, that that kind of gives me pause I guess is the better way to put it um is like you kind of know exactly what you're getting with, or or you're supposed to know exactly what you're getting with with a Kickstarter, right? Like, people often lay out directly, like, you know, this is how we're going to do it, and these are what the features are going to be, and if we get more money than we ask for, these will be our stretch goals. And I feel like that's got a real weird interaction in kind of like a a AAA space. Mm. Right? Like, I get, like, like, I get this kind of, like, put your money where your mouth is as an interest for, like, lesser, lesser, like, more niche titles for a publisher, but I, I just don't think the standard model would work with, uh,
1: with kind of, uh, a publisher
0: uh
1: I also think 1000% this is something that publishers publishers would exploit. I mean Square yeah. Enix yes. the upstanding people of Square Enix would never do this, right? <laughs> but those dirty bastards at I don't know, Activision, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, uh, because then you also, you know, like because then it's not about then it's not about like, oh, let's crowdfund a way to get a an English localization of this niche Japanese title, right? It's well. Let's you let's know. find a way to let's, let's, let's find it, a way let's,
0: to crowdsource this an English. Translation of this niche Japanese title, Final Fantasy Fifteen.
1: Right, yeah, exactly. Let's end Final Fantasy XV on, like, a huge fat oh cliffhanger and then put a price tag. And then inside of the game, right, just to make this as horrible as possible, inside of the game, be like, if you want to see Final Fantasy Sixteen, pick up where, you know, this left off, right? Said $60 now. Like, <laughs> I you can don't, super see that. You don't happen. want Noctis to die, do you? <laughs> Oh, God. (laughs) I have legit thought about... I mean, there's a lot of dark, dark... It's funny with movies. Uh, You know, you always kind of see those, uh, uh, you know, you always see those shirts that's like, oh, if you want to see the ending, you've got to pay another $20, because it's making fun of, like, how DLC, you know what I mean? Like, the game isn't complete without DLC kind of thing. And, you know, know, a lot of the times I think that stuff is a little bit mean-spirited and doesn't quite, you know, tack... Uh, from like a, 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 you know, a truly rational perspective, but I think one point is the idea, like, I could definitely see something along those lines happen, you know, it just takes one person to like break those rules and be successful at it to like bust the industry wide open.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, you need you need the first one to be like really careful and go right, and then everybody else can just be shitty about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but to kind of bring it down a little bit more to uh, off of this weird like publisher dynamic, I do think it's, it's okay for like people to go, like for, for companies to go and use their existing, go get crowdfunding for, for existing things, right? Like, um, I forgot the name of the company behind the Banner Saga, but they're a small company, right? And right, and uh, the uh, it's it's Obsidian behind Path of Exile, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: no, uh, Pillars uh, of Eternity. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, the uh, different POE. Return. Yeah, your Pillars of Eternity. Yeah, uh, Obsidian. Obsidian is well known, but still not like you know, it, it's not Blizzard. It's not a giant company that that can fund everything themselves. And I think it's okay for them to be like, we'd like to be able to keep ourselves out from under publishers, so. You know, please, let it, please help us with this. Um, and I I, I I don't agree with people who say that, like, oh, now that they've made money, they should be able to... They they have bootstrapped themselves into the industry so they should never need um, to, to crowdfund again. Like, games cost a lot of money to make, and um, especially, especially when you're... So, th- this is kind of going to lead into another point, um, something that I think can be a flaw, and the downfall of a lot of Kickstarters, is that um that argument would tack more to me if stretch goals weren't such a huge thing yeah um so stretch goals I think are a problem in a lot of ways because a developer can a developer that gets a super positive response to their Kickstarter can drown themselves with their own stretch goals uh,
1: uh, yeah uh, uh, man there's a really good example for this but I can't think of it off the top of my head um but that that's so that, that's
0: kind of the problem and I think that um, with a lot of companies who do do stretch goals, which is kind of ex- expected now, they don't actually get to keep as much of the extra funding as you think they would because they've, they've sunk, reinvested that all into making the stretch goals happen. Um, and because of that, they don't get to they kind of keep as much residual money and then use that to, to say, essentially bootstrap into a new game, um, in fact, companies that don't even have to deal with that, right? Like regular developers often wouldn't make enough money off of the sales of their original games to bootstrap a second game, and that's why they that that's why they work with publishers. Um, and so, I, I don't think I, I think expecting companies to be able to um, be able to, to to get their be able to fund a second game off of the success of a kickstarted first game, I don't, I don't think is, is reasonable. So,
1: uh, I do, I do want to push back a little bit on this because okay. I think to a certain, another aspect of this argument is the idea that like, well, once you've shown that you're successful on Kickstarter, right? That you've put, you've done this successful game on Kickstarter. Now you basically have a blueprint with which to go to a publisher, right? Like if I'm stoic, um, with the banner saga, I can now take the banner saga Two paradox and say, Hey, fund the banner saga Two for us, please. Okay. Thanks. Right. Um, that that's kind of the other part of this argument. And I actually think that that works to a certain extent. Um, and, uh, and that makes and that, you know, like that makes a certain amount of sense to me. And I think you could make a case that what obsidian is doing, especially because obsidian is using uh, not Kickstarter, but a more shady version of uh, a crowdfunding site called uh, fig, fig is what it's called. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, um, I think fig has got its own problems, but I th- I think, I think the problems with fig stand outside of kind of the philosophical arguments about crowdfunding as like a... Because I think this is very much a, 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 an argument about like the philosophy of crowdfunding. Did, sure. do, you, do you agree? So the, yeah. the 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 issue... The thing I'm going to say to you is that I am okay with them going to Kickstarter because I want them to be able to not have to go to a publisher. Right? You know, Stoke could go to EA and be like, look, the Banner Saga was super successful. And they'd be like, awesome, we'll give you, you know, a contract for Banner Saga 2. And you know but this comes some control from EA It says, well, you know, uh, guns are tracking better with our target demographics than swords. So give all your Vikings guns. And obviously that's a ludicrous example. But the, the point is, is that publishers can meddle. And the reason Kickstarter is so appealing, at least to me, is that you can, you can avoid the publisher, right? Like I want a developer to be able to say, fuck you to a publisher um, for, for their niche game whenever they want because otherwise I think you it's way too easy to get boulderized versions of, of games that, that, that are that don't appeal to what they want to. They appeal to the widest market possible.
1: Yeah, I, so I agree to this to a certain extent, uh, especially that point of, like, I actually think that it's valuable to have a space like Kickstarter where you are basically saying as stoic, right, like, hey, listen, you know, like, this is our game. Uh, it's I, I, I think it also works specifically with the Banner Saga because those games are so small in scope. If this was a $60 kind of quote-unquote AAA super polished experience, right, like, look, I don't think that you could, you could, you couldn't kickstart GTA V. Right, right. Um, but I think it's very possible and very doable to kickstart games like you know Pillars of Eternity and the Banner Saga. They they kind of are because they take there's the you know they they they've narrowed down. They focus in um, and uh, and they don't burden themselves down with too much like super powered graphics, right? Like all of those kinds of things that are like giant giant money sinks. Um, I think they can, they can get away with this sort of thing, uh, easier, but I could definitely see a version of like, you know, um, all of the guys at, you know, all of the guys that respawn go and they say, we want to self-publish Titanfall 3, right? But you know, the, the real cost for making Titanfall 3 is pretty ridiculous. And there's no way that you're going to be able to kickstart that from happening. And the whole thing just kind of blows up because of it. Um, I could definitely see something along those lines. Happen, you know what I mean?
0: I, I, I'm not quite like I, I understand your point, or
1: rather, I, I understand, I guess, the really, really, my point is you know, the, the thing that allows me to, um, uh, the, the thing that says to me, like, part of the reason that I'm very okay with the banner saga three and pillars of eternity two, and I don't really, you know, I don't really agree with these arguments in general, is because of the specifics. Um, of those games and those studios being smaller scale and smaller scope in a weird way. This is kind of like, like double a, like it's not quite indie. Right. Um, but it's also definitely not triple a there's it's in this middle, middle territory where, yeah. Okay. We can get thousands and thousands of dollars, uh, through, through Kickstarter. Um, and we're going to meet our goals in a day and, you know, like whatever else kind of thing. But, um, we are, uh, we are, Carving out a very manageable chunk for ourselves, compared to you know hardcore high level AAA games like Mass Effect Andromeda. Okay, or, I I see what you're you saying. Know, whatever
0: else. I, I I see what you're saying, um, and and I can buy that, but I I think that's like a much kind of more like I have yet to see anything like that try and happen. Right. If that makes sense, like I don't think. Like, anybody that kind of falls into this, you should be going to a publisher, is somebody that should be going to a publisher, right? Like, yeah, I buy that, you know, your super high-powered 3D graphics with, like, cutting-edge technology and the latest lighting engine. Yeah, you know, maybe Hideo Kojima shouldn't crowdfund crowd um, Death Stranding, um, but I don't think anybody's trying to.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh. Yeah, it's just, it's something I want to mention. Just that, like, this is less about the principle. I can see where the principle gets rough, uh, and and more about the specifics of okay, I see two, what you're saying uh, uh, of these two projects being you know manageable.
0: Yeah. Um. Well, you, you mentioned Fig earlier. Do you have strong opinions
1: on Fig? No, I actually never heard about it until this drama uh, happened. Um, okay. Well, it's it,
0: it's it's had a few steps of drama over the past the the first big so uh, fig is um is the biggest difference between fig and and kickstarter is fig allows you to also um invest in uh in in the game instead of just um instead of just uh you know instead of just donating money the process there's also um an opportunity for you to put in a significant amount of money and get some equity in the game um However, the, there is some issue the, the biggest issue behind it is that the terms of investment are super 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 um, kind of uh, n- not great for the person investing um, people who have I, I am not a lawyer so I can't really talk about um, the kind of legal ramifications um, but uh, people people online who who have Claim to have a better understanding of it, have said that the terms are ridiculous. To anybody that um, knows what they're talking about, would never put a dime into Fig um, as an investor because they're like, um, essentially, they get to claim how much. Like, like, there's no verification on how much money they made, and what what gets passed back to you is kind of as as the investor is is kind of very up in the air and might never come back to you, and so it's just not. It's not a very solid investment. Yeah. Um. The other big thing about it, the other big thing about it is that one of the founders of Fig, um, I think is is the right way to put it. Um. Uh, it was Tim Schaefer. Um, and the first game on Fig was Psychonauts Two, um, and there was some weirdness with how that campaign went. Some numbers got switched. Like I think the deadline got extended by two weeks, and then they claimed that that was a glitch, and it should have always been extended by two weeks. But then the people with the, you know the 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 more cynical people said, no, you extended it because it looked like you weren't going to fit your hit your goal if you didn't extend another two weeks. Um, so I don't I don't, I don't know how to feel about Fig in particular. I might consider doing it like like using it, um, but I, I as
1: with all kind of things um, I am. Skeptical. Um. How many how many games have you kickstarted over, the, over oh.
0: the years? Um. Let's see. Um. I I will log into Kickstarter and I will tell you in a second. Um. Do you want all games or just uh, uh, or just uh, or, or just video games?
1: Uh what uh is either I'm actually interested by both those numbers. All right. So, I backed Kingdom Death Monster 1.5 is
0: the latest one, which is a board game. I backed a couple different um uh uh what's it called uh dice tray things. I backed a game called Nilo. I I backed BattleTech, the the the, the top-down isometric mech game. Um I do, I backed a tabletop game called Hunt the Wicked, which I'm glad I looked at this, because I do not remember this at all, I should, uh, see if, uh, if I've got, if I should, if I can collect on that, I backed Divinity Original Sin 2, I backed Bloodstained, um, I backed Shadowrun Hong Kong, um, I backed, backed Potato Salad, um, and you bagged potato salad? Yeah. You're That's really, yeah, I thought, Yes, I know exactly what you're referring to. It was the guy
1: who crowdfunded his own making of potato salad and got like hundred yeah, thousand dollars. Yeah,
0: I thought it was funny, so I gave him three dollars. I was like, you know what? I I'm okay with that. I backed Frog Fractions too, which is finally out. I backed Oof Um Uh, uh Hover Revolt of Gamers. Um I backed Altio Horizons, which is a Turn-based tactics card game, which I never actually went and and played. Um, I backed Hyperlight Drifter and Fighting Knight Number or Mighty Number no. Nine. I backed Massive Chalice. I backed the first Divinity Original Sin. Back Shovel Knight. I backed Here You Rogue to Redemption, which um, has an estimated delivery of October two thousand thirteen, and still hasn't come out yet. Um, wow. I backed Project Eternity, which became Pillars of Eternity. Probably forgot that I backed it and then bought a full copy of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I bought Black Shadow Returns, Batter Saga, Wasteland Two, and uh, um a couple that got canceled. Um, but yeah, um so like looks like
1: maybe a dozen or so. Jeez. Uh well. That's impressive. I've literally never backed anything on Kickstarter. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, not actually. There, there's no ill... I, I, I bear no ill will um, towards people who do. Um, but I I, I just... I, I don't have the cash for it, essentially, right? Like, if I'm going to be putting cash towards... Uh, Um, if I'm going to be putting cash towards a project, I kind of have to know that that pro like I like, I am, I am very much in in like a wait and see, uh, camp. And I like, I don't know. I can't, I can't really justify that cost to myself. I definitely feel that, you know, when I, when I start making more, more money than I am now or, you know, whatever else, uh, I could see, I could see that, that kind of philosophy change though.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I'm okay with doing it because like every time I back a game, it's With the understanding that I might never actually get it. Um, Fair enough. And so, like, because of that, like, that's because I inform my my purchasing that way, I don't feel bad about it. Right? Like, I I view it more as kind of like an act of altruism with a potential payout at the end rather than buying a product. And I think that that attitude is why I'm able to um, live with myself. Um, to, to back these kinds of things. <laughs> um, plus I also back people that, in a lot of ways, I know. Like, I backed um a a, a group that made me a wooden box. Uh, I think you saw it last year at Gen Con. Is is my my dice box. Um, then they had another one. T- they were making dice towers, and I was like, you know what, you did an excellent job with my book. I'm going to give you another bunch of money to make me a custom dice tower. So I did that. Um, and similarly, like you know. Backing Divinity Original Sin 2 was easy, because it backed Divinity Original Sin 1, and that game was great. Um, although I probably shouldn't have backed 2, just because I never ended up playing much of 1, just because I was... Uh, I just never got around to it. <laughs> um, but I'm... I don't know. I like... I like, uh, I like being able to support developers in this way. I like the fact that, like, these traditional CRPGs have made a comeback because Kickstarter is a thing. I'm, I like the fact that we're getting, like, classic Castlevania again, because, um, because Kickstarter's a thing. I think this is all great stuff for the games industry. We can, you can get, like, a lot of top-tier talent that way, too. Like, you know, when the, uh, you know, I, hopefully Bloodstained isn't a piece of shit, and I'm not eating my words in six months, but the, uh, the fact that we can get the original creator of Castlevania to make a new Castlevania-style game, um... Without having to deal with fucking Konami, is mm. is amazing, um. And so I I don't know I I view kickst- I view crowdfunding as a general force for good, um and and even things like like this other stuff like like you know I've got, um this new RPG that I just remembered that I should, download, um. And like you know that's that's a totally independent RPG created by somebody you know. We ever decide to sit down and write, uh, you know, our, uh, write fucking, uh, uh, into a real
1: campaign setting, we can kickstart that until, and get, like, pretty art for it or something. I think that's amazing. You know, uh, I, I wanted to, I guess, kind of close out the conversation by drawing your, or your attention to a specific project. This that is the first project that I think I might end up backing, ever. Um, It came to my attention because a bunch of people from Paizo tweeted it out today. It's called Dusk City Outlaws. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. So, uh, it's a role-playing game. It's a new role-playing game. It's, uh, you know, it's out at the end of the year, apparently. Um... And uh, it is self-described as a role-playing game of heists and other thievery by Rodney Thompson who's a you know a game developer who's worked on for uh, uh the Star Wars uh, Star Wars saga edition um, and it, you know it's one of those it's a it's a massive fantasy city there's eight criminal cartels you pick a cartel you know all of this other kind of stuff or whatever um, but I actually think that the ability to kickstart, Stuff like this might be the poster child for the positivity that I think Kickstarter brings to uh, to the industry, I guess. Um, you know, it's really, uh, you know, like, it's obviously really in-depth. It's, it's really cool that they were able to kind of lay out as much as they were able to lay out. But it's also these little things, like, um, the stretch goals are... At a certain number of backers it'll come with a written scenario by uh famous you know famous artists or uh, you know uh, uh sorry writers rather um you know the first one is um john rogers who's a television writer on the show leverage which i have no idea um but uh, uh and then Soladine Ahmed, who is actually writing the Black Bolt comic series for Marvel, Uh, you know, they have a third one that is, like, as of yet unannounced, and I think that the kind of stretch goals inhabit the same, like, interesting space, Um, I like, I almost want to call it design space, but that's not really what it is, that the bonus objectives of the day of the uh the missions that you can undertake the order hall missions in world of warcraft do right like the fact that you're getting whatever you're getting kind of baseline makes it work um but then when you have you know a seventy five thousand dollars stretch goal that's a 40 page you know compendium uh on a on a specific area of the city like that's actually that's actually super cool. I think that's really, that's really interesting. And, um, and being able to, to contribute money in order to look for, in order to kind of hunt for that level uh, of, of bonus is awesome, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I also think the game's a little bit different for, or rather, the Kickstarter game is a little bit different for tabletop RPGs too, right? I think running a 40-page supplement is a lot, like, less, like, you know, not that it's, I'm not trying to say it's easy, but it's not making another seven levels in a video game, right? There's not the same type right, of technical right, right. requirement. Yeah, definitely. Um... And you know, I think for for tabletops in particular, Kickstarter is awesome. That you know, um, you know when we played Seventh uh, Sea at Gen Con, that game was kickstarted because it was it, you know, it had been dead for ten years. Um, right, Paranoia right. has been dead for a while, and there they kickstarted a new Paranoia, and so all these kind of classic properties that like, you know, you couldn't get a big publisher to publish again because you you couldn't make the volume, you can. Now publishing smaller runs because people are willing to put the money out in front. I think that's amazing.
1: I, I, you, I you know really I have that. to I have to agree. I think that is so fucking cool. I can't even. Uh, man, that's funny. I didn't think about Seven C being Kickstarted. I I knew that, but like, it just didn't occur to me because I really fucking love Seven C. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, we you know we bought the book. I could definitely see us play uh a more in-depth 7c game though i think you can really only do that live uh yeah but uh yeah i i feel that i definitely think you know and it's also um i'm kind of particularly reminded that tabletop is a smaller audience you know the market share the market share of tabletop games is pretty small yeah uh overall compared to uh you know kind of kind of compared to other stuff um yeah so so,
0: so, so something i want to throw in there too is like for both tabletop and board games right these games can a lot of the time these kickstarters exist fully completed before the kickstarter goes live and the money is just you know to pay for a production run on the board game or or on the books that are being bound, and you know it's not like you need it's not like you need a hundred thousand dollars to um to develop a tabletop game, right? Like you, you can do that in kind of like yours you could do that outside of that, right? You you don't need four programmers sitting down writing code to do that, and I think that makes it a lot stronger argument for tabletop games and board games because um most of the time you can be guaranteed that the product's going to come out because it's already done there's no question there it's just a matter of getting everything um organized and commissioning art and that type of thing
1: yeah yeah i mean just to put this in high relief real quick um wizards of the coast as a company is worth 325 million dollars which is actually a lot it's like way more than i expected um but uh, you know they're the, of magic they are cards. the well, sure. I'm just saying, like the, uh, when it comes to tabletop kind of gaming, right? They are the company that is the that is worth the most. Um, but then Activision Blizzard, which is uh, a you know obviously a um, Activision Blizzard is worth 14 billion dollars. So you know, like the the it, it puts in kind of stark contrast how little. Comparatively, uh, you know, I mean, the, and 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 most, and you're right. Like most of that must come from Magic: The Gathering, right? Like, there's no way in the world I feel that, uh, you know, I feel that most of the power that goes into that Wizards of the Coast, uh, you know, it's gonna be worth, it's gonna be worth that. Um, but that's businessy stuff. That I don't. You know how much, uh, much uh, pyzo's worth? I have no idea. I just googled how much money is pyzo. Worth? Let's check. I I don't think they're publicly uh, traded. So I don't think so either. I'm pretty sure they're. Um... Man, I don't know. Yeah, I really don't don't know offhand. I feel like it would not be very much money, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. No, I I, just, I think that'd be an interesting number to see because
0: they are like a pure RPG company. Yeah. Um and so you it's it's not like, you know, Wizards like I said, a lot of that money is coming from magic, which is, you know, it's still a tabletop game, but it's also not like, you know, publishing supplements. Right, um, right, right. Um but uh but yeah, um
1: I mean, I also think that it's just going to be harder for games uh uh I think it's just going to be harder for tabletop games because tabletop games are basically selling you an engine Right, they're not really selling you the finished product. It almost specifically like pen and paper, um, RPGs, and even really, you know, like magic, isn't right. Like magic yeah. is selling you the system more than it's selling you. You know, like a, a, you it, 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 you can't play single player magic, right? Like right, you right. kind of have to. You have to buy uh, into the system in order to be part of the community. You know, to be another good uh, a good example of this would be Games Workshop. I feel like. Um, because I would be very in- interested to, to, um, figure out what the numbers are like behind Warhammer, uh, you know, Warhammer 40k, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, they do so much licensing. They've been able to get so far off of their licensing that I feel like that would really kind of play into it. I'm honestly a little bit surprised that Wizards hasn't like, you know, where's the magic, the gathering, uh, magic gathering online exists. Well, no, I know Magic: The Gathering online. I'm just any like your duels of the Planeswalkers or whatever. But like, you know,
0: oh, like some weird, some weird like, like Moba where or, yeah, yeah.
1: But because you you know you've got you've got you know Warhammer Online. Yeah, you've yeah. got you know Total War Warhammer. You've got Space Hulk. You've got Dawn of War. Right. You've got all these different you know Vermintide. Right. Like. Uh, I feel like you could go somewhere with some of those, some of those things in the context of magic, but magic is also just kind of a harder universe to make it work in, I feel like. Yeah, especially because
0: everything's so kind of abstract. Um, Like, I, I feel like the number of, what, what's the word, Melvins out there is so much less than, like, e- like I, I think even like like, you know, Warhammer has a really cool.
1: Wait, do you mean Vorthos?
0: Vorthos, whatever. Yes, yes, <laughs> Vorthos, not Melbourne. We are Vorthos. we are
1: referring, of course, to the different player. I am a an avowed Vorthos. The, the The different player archetypes for Magic: The Gathering players, right? You know, you've got Johnny's who just want to play big fat monsters. Uh, you've got Spike who is all about like the meta and like you know the who just wants to win and gets all of their their satisfaction from winning. Um, no, I'm actually I misspelled. Johnny is combos. Yeah, Johnny right? is combos. What is it, Timmy? Uh, Timmy. Timmy wants to play the big monsters. Uh, and then there's Vorthos, who is me, who lo- who just likes the world and wants to play an elf deck because all of the elf cards are cool and includes one copy of Kamal Pitfighter in all of his red decks because Kamal Pitfighter is his favorite card. That's uh, me. What was, which one's... Melvin's like the opposite of Vorthos, right? Like, what is... Me- no, Melvin is the troll. Melvin is the guy the- who...
0: That's not Melvin. That's like uh, Drew or something. That's like, like M- Melvin is is like uh, the guy who's like very interested in like technical aspects.
1: Um, let me see if I can find this. Ugh. I now, yeah, I now want to find it too because I may be uh, missing oh. missing out. Wow, they actually had in tw- in twenty fifteen they had Vorthos Week. Wow, wow. Yeah, the, so the original article comes from Mark Rosewater, uh who I'm sure has, you know, there are no there are no inflammatory opinions about that guy. Um where he where he uh introduced Melvin and Vorthos it seems in 2007.
0: Okay, so so Melvin appreciates like essentially the structure of a card, right? Like you know, how it fits into, like, the color pie. Um, and how, like, the mana costing is elegant or whatever. Um, what, Just, like, purely from a systems perspective. Yeah, While well, Vorthoses are focused okay. on the craft behind the creative. Mel's are focused on the craft of the design. Um,
1: That's fair. I am, I am very... Uh, uh, in a weird way, I'm actually kind of both because I do I do appreciate the craft behind the design of cards <coughs> yeah no I
0: I I I actually I don't know I think I think that everybody's a little bit of everybody right yeah that's fair I guess um, oh it's Dave Dave is the um is is the is is the
1: dick that <laughs> Dave is the guy who just wants to frustrate you is yes. The- yeah, okay. D- Dave is the guy who,
0: like, it, like the, the guy who I can't I can't remember who, who wrote the original article. I think I might have found it. Um. Uh, uh, I'll I'll see if I can find it and link it in in the bottom, um, or in, in the description. Uh I'll also like the the if you could send me the, the Melvin and Forthos article. Uh, uh, sure. Um, uh, uh, Dave, um, is the guy who likes to f- to. To fuck with you just to kind of fuck with you. Like, I'm um, I, um, I th- sure I've said this before. I very famously accidentally made a Dave deck when I was very young and didn't realize until college when I played it that it is, like, the worst deck in existence. It's essentially, the deck is a deck that is full of counters and tap tricks, but doesn't really have its own win condition. So it just kind of, like, stalls the game out for 40 minutes um, and then loses <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: but it's like the most frustrating thing to play against. People, are You know, like, I have to say, oh I my have God. to say, I actually played a black-blue control deck in EDH for the longest time that was ba- basically that. It played a cult called Rexiel the Risen Deep, who, uh, <laughs> who had Island Walk and Swamp Walk. And I had all these ways to give him, uh, you know, like unblockability through those by making my opponents, you know, like... Um, uh, God, I can't remember what the cards, but it turns all lands into swamps in addition to their other land types or whatever. And so what he could do was, uh, and then when he hit someone's face for like five damage, you know, he wasn't a super powerful creature. You could cast an instant or sorcery spell in their graveyard for free. And really my only win condition with that was like chaining time stops. Into, like, three or four, Rexiel hits you in the face, maybe. Like, I get you down to 20 HP, and I can pull it out just by chaining, you know, um, not time stop, but, uh, uh, you know, all of the all of the different versions of, and or, uh, all of the different versions of um, take another turn after this one cards that are in the game. And it was precisely that. It was just, I didn't really have a win condition, you know? It was just... You know, how many wrath effects do I have in my deck that I can clear the board with so that I don't die before, you know, somebody else kind of does?
0: Yeah, you know what my win condition for for my deck was? It had 64 cards in it. And usually <laughs> oh decks have 60 God. cards in it.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> call, you really are a piece of shit though. Yeah,
0: I don't like when I built the deck, I didn't realize how shitty it was, right? Like mm-hmm. I was just like, "Oh boy, I really like counter spells. I think that's neat." And I didn't really think about the fact, that, like, about how much it tortured other players to play against it because I only ever played against my brother, who was kind of an asshole anyway. Um.
1: Well, my favorite Magic: The Gathering deck ever uh, was is my Wizard deck. I actually still have most of the pieces of it somewhere in this like giant shoebox of Magic cards. But um, it uses a card called Patron Wizard, which is tap and untapped Wizard you control, counter target spell unless its opponent or unless its controller pays one. So that, which is just three Islands, and then it has basically every single mana Wizard in the game. <laughs> So that you flood the board with all of these really, really low mana cost wizards, and just use them to just counter everything that your opponent would ever do. Uh, it also has a couple of tricks in there with Intruder Alarm. Uh, there's, there's a uh, Intruder Alarm is whenever a creature comes into play, untap all creatures. Uh, and then there's another card called, called Cryptic Gateway, which is tap two, you know, tap two untapped creatures that share a creature type put a creature card from your hand into play that shares that creature type so I could just flood the board and keep putting in new wizards and it was just it was a mess did you ever play that wizard deck I was playing it in college I might have played against I it met. I might I might have put I think I think
0: we played the slow mill deck against that deck and I think you won because you actually had a real win condition
1: <laughs> yeah it also had like the most convoluted combo of all time it was like a seven piece combo that was you know L- one legendary wizard those two cards i was talking about earlier uh you know the the primark the wizard primark that's tap five untapped wizards and you you know remove a bunch of cards from your opponent's deck or whatever god that was the it was the sloppiest but also most fun and like the dickish like the dickish deck i all i've ever played in my life actually i played a green red land destruction deck that was also purely a dave deck yeah i'm really surprised they didn't name dave richard because it would have made a lot of sense i so because you could just call him a dick so the gay got the gay, the guy who wrote the dave article
0: i think um uh the the reason i i think he wrote it because the guy he knew that was like that was named dave um gotcha uh and so that's the only reason why he's dave um yeah, it's, he says due to my own experiences, I dub him Dave, um, which I assume is code <laughs> for it. my friend Dave is an asshole. Um, uh, yeah, I'll make sure to link that in the description because that's actually a good read. Um, and it's got links to the original, the, the original three psychographs. Um, then we will put in Vorthos, and Melvin. So we've got the uh, the what is it the, the seven psychographs at this point? Johnny. What are the wait? Timmy, Johnny, Spike, Melth- Melvin, Vorthos, and Dave. Oh, six. That's six. six. Okay.
1: Yep. I also think that there is such thing as a, uh, like, almost like an anti-Dave of, like, the person who just wants to have fun and doesn't care about winning or, you know what I mean? Like, he just wants to have the good game and doesn't care about winning or losing sort of thing. Right, but, um, but like... You see this kind of thing a lot. I So I used to play a ton of, like, multiplayer games, um, and these people tend to make kind of, like, weirdly, like... Pacifist decks, almost like they're almost invariably white with like a ton of enchantments, but like it's just kind of about helping everyone else. Uh, that uh, might this might just be limited to my experience. I really, know.
0: I've no, so I've known people like that, but I've never like seen that like kind of like come out as like a deck preference type thing. I used
1: to play. We could almost do an episode on all of the weird variations of multiplayer because I actually think Magic as a one v one game is boring and uninteresting, um, but Magic as a you know, 2v2, 3v3, five free, you know, five man free for all. Uh, we used to play a format called Star, which is, um, you know, it's five people. Did you ever play Star?
0: Is, is this the one where it's like everybody gets a color and then you're allied with your two neighbors and enemies? With the yeah, two yeah, yeah. Like yeah. It's
1: essentially, there's five people, right? You know, the two people that you are sitting next to. Um, well, you're not allied with them, but, you know, the, 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 you need to defeat the two people who are not adjacent to you. You can only do it with five people in order to win the game, um, which creates some really kind of interesting dynamics sometimes. Because, like, you know, if you kill two people that are not adjacent, the game doesn't end because there's that middle person that you still have to kill. But, like, both players need to get the killing blow in order to get the victory kind of a thing. Um you know, there's two uh, two-headed giant. There's Emperor, which is a lot of fun. Have you ever played Emperor? Uh, no, I've never played Emperor. Oh man, Emperor is super fun because it's kind of like uh, you're like a boss with like two mini bosses essentially. Because um, it plays at first kind of like a game of well, not quite two-headed giant because you're still going in turn order, but it's a little bit like two v two. And they're called the lieutenants, right? And so the the four lieutenants are fighting, but then when once one of the lieutenants dies a third player who's called the emperor who's been playing this whole time but can't actually affect the board yet comes in and fills his lieutenant slot. So basically you just like build these like ridiculously late game, you know, green ramp decks or just whatever it is and then you come into the game as the emperor and just like swing your huge, you know, board board presence down and try and like sweep the game off of it. Emperor is a ton of fun. Yeah, there's a ton. There is a ton of multiplayer formats that are super fun and interesting to play in Magic the Gathering.
0: Yeah, no, that that it sounds like it. Um, but
1: uh, I, I guess that's actually, I want to add one uh, more. I actually want to add one okay. more real quick. The last one because I basically I, the last one that's super cool is called Ghost, which is when you when you go to zero HP, you don't actually leave the game. You still keep you have lost right, but you still keep playing the game and you can help. Other players win, essentially, uh, and it's and you just become a huge jerk. And a lot of the time, you're just fucking over the guy that killed you. That it's really a lot of fun. Anyway, well, that's that's that for uh,
0: crowdfunding. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're right. That is, yeah, whoops, crowd. well the last fifteen minutes of crowdfunding is just Magic the Gathering. Yeah, I well, think it's yeah, fine. <laughs> you, whatever. Uh, uh, but it's yeah. all games, and we're derps talking about them. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, speaking of buddy, what games have you been playing this week? I have been playing World of Warcraft. That's basically it. Ah. That's, yeah, I'm really good at this. Uh, I, I have been playing the one new game I played this week. Have you played this? Is Duelist Links? Speaking of card games, the Yu-Gi-Oh! Hearthstone game that uh, that got added for mobile devices, uh, in uh, in English recently.
0: No, I don't, I've never been a Yu-Gi-Oh! fan.
1: Have you never, like, not even, like, the TV show, like, years and years ago?
0: Um, I watched maybe a dozen episodes of the abridged series, and that's it.
1: Oh, no! How can I not share my love of Yu-Gi-Oh! with you? Man, you know, you must think I have the worst taste in uh, in anime. No, I, I, love love things. Well, no, we were talking about Dragon Ball Z the other week, um.
0: Yeah, I just, I, I just, I just never got into, like, super, the super mainstream shows. Um, I, I was introduced to anime by my, like, like, you know, my, my, uh, to use, to use a pejorative by my weeb friends in high school. And they were like, you need to watch Death Note and Ghost in the Shell. And so that's what I watched instead of, uh, instead of, you know, Dragon Ball Z and and Yu-Gi-Oh! Jesus Christ. Um, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, um, so tell me, tell me about this Yu-Gi-Oh! Hearthstone game.
1: It's pretty bad. It's pretty <laughs> awful, actually. Um, it is a pretty one-to-one uh, transference. It's like it's like if they made a, a game client for like Magic, because Yu-Gi-Oh! has been around for a long time, right? Like, the Yu-Gi-Oh! anime hit, and it was awesome, and I watched so much of it. And then the Yu-Gi-Oh! card game hit, and it was awesome, and I played so much of it. Um, but the Yu-Gi-Oh! card game had... The <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be people out there who, you know, disagree with this. The Yu-Gi-Oh! card game really did not have the kind of, like, strategic life's, lifetime that a game like Magic did in the, in the way that, like, Magic kind of thinks about itself in sweeping large contexts, I guess. Um, Yu-Gi-Oh! very much felt like Konami, uh, was essentially cashing in on this incredibly possible, you know, incredibly profitable anime series by launching the card game version of that anime series with honestly pretty bad rules, um, (laughs) uh, with honestly pretty awful rules and, uh, uh, just, just shitting out these card sets, just like tons of them really, really quickly, um, and uh, so, the, so the game very quickly kind of got bloated by, you know, a meta got established and the game designers never took it seriously. So it just kind of ripped everything to shreds. Uh, and then I disengaged with Yu-Gi-Oh! This is maybe like a couple of, you know, maybe this is maybe like half a year in middle school we're kind of talking about. Um, not that I knew what a meta was at the time. Um, flash forward to now. It uses all the same rules of the regular card game which are pretty awful honestly like for instance when you summon a monster you can just attack with it on the first turn that you summon it um there's no such thing as like summoning sickness or like like you know like the sleepness that's in hearthstone so if you can just you know monsters regularly have about you know somewhere between 1000 somewhere between zero technically uh and and you know uh 2000 attack power um baseline uh i remember when i was playing it was uh, there were a lot of monsters that had you know 1800 power that you ha- that you could just summon or whatever a player's life total was 4000 points so if you just summoned one of these you know 1800 genies attacked with it on the turn you summoned it that's half your opponent's life total gone instantly uh, so it wasn't very well made, it was not, once you got board control, you basically won the game, you can only summon one monster per turn, you know what I mean, so if you summon a monster, your opponent summons a monster, and then the, the person who goes first kills that monster, and, and he leaves his up, well, you're basically, you know, shit out of luck, anyway, I've been playing the, uh, I've been playing the mobile game version of it, spoiler alert, they have worked so hard to make, like, the anime and like the animations interesting and kind of uh, like active and proactive or whatever that they've just kind of drowned this awful game in these like animations that I might think were pretty cool if they didn't just completely bog down the game time in like weird spell effects and digital you know pixelization-y things and it's 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 bad it's awful it is a worse mobile game than Pokemon go.
0: Wow, so, yeah, well, I'm glad that you put your time into it so you could tell uh, us about how
1: bad it was i did I did put a little bit of time i i have played I played the tutorial and then I played one match after the tutorial, and I was like, well, this is awful <laughs> but uh but yeah that that is the that is the big ticket item that i've been uh, that I've been playing this week okay um. Do we play? Or, well, new item besides besides World of Warcraft. Did obviously. we uh? Did we play Rune Lords this week?
0: We did. I just had to duck Jesus out for a large part of it.
1: Oh, you are right. Yeah, we just explored a we explored this dungeon. I have a feeling that uh, this dungeon. I don't have a feeling. I'm I'm almost positive. Uh, this dungeon is basically being being run with um, uh the uh. The um. It's like the book's dungeon with, like, a little inserted kind of framing device, uh, which is one of the NPCs that we have kind of met already, which is neat, actually. Um, I think it's kind of a cool device. I'm a little bit into it. I I don't exactly like the Scribbler all that much or find him super, you know, compelling or, I don't know, interesting or whatever. Um, Yeah.
0: I mean, he's... So he, he... the Scribbler is a character in the Adventure Path. I can tell you that because I have the Pawn set. And, like, there's there's a token that says the Scribbler on it. And I'm like, what the fuck is this shit? Um, so, you know, this isn't, this isn't so, like, I think the name being so, like, weird is, that that's that's not on Mark, that's on the Adventure Path. I don't know why they decided that was a good name.
1: Yeah, that's that is uh, that is a little bit weird. Also, kind of the time traveling aspect of it really kind of came out of left field. I'm not a huge, I, I don't want to be um, uh. Mean, I guess, um, because I kind of get that. Ta- you know, like, I, I think time travel stories can get, you, you know, cool and interesting and everything like that. But I have a problem with time travel stories that don't set themselves up that way, right? Like, when time travel just kind of happens to a story, like, is there, is there five books through, that feels very weird to me. Is, is it
0: really time travel, though? I thought it was just, like, some guy who would, like, like essentially, he it's, it's not like anybody's going back in time, right? It's just, like, a forward-moving thing. Like, somebody survived from from the the old age forward. That usually doesn't bother me too much.
1: You know, I kind of link them together, but... uh, Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's kind of the... I don't know, it's kind of like the Austin Powers thing of, like, this person was cryogenically frozen or whatever. Yeah, I mean, so so those stories, I think, they bother me less
0: because there's less opportunity for, like, you know... Uh, a Deus Ex Machina to get pulled out of an ass, that, yeah. that that's like oh well he stopped this by going back in time, um, uh but uh you know
1: yeah I mean you know my my problem with Star uh sorry uh with time travel stories is uh when they don't set them you know like for instance Looper. Or Edge of Tomorrow, right? Like, it's a story explicitly about time con- time travel, right. right? Like, it's set up from the beginning. You know, even if they don't – they haven't thrown down uh, – if they haven't thrown down what the specifics of the time, time travel rules are, it feels better than, like, when, you know – geez i don't know like the third harry potter book which is ironically my favorite one and i think the best of them uh the third harry potter book kind of using time travel to oh, fix the itself. Time in, yeah, yeah. the time turners yeah time turners in the back end of it is is really weird and bad yep i feel like
0: time turners are a terrible plot device wait what? i don't like harry potter very much what do you have against time turners, though? They're a terrible plot device. Why hasn't okay. every problem been solved in the Harry Potter universe been solved by like time turners? And they never get solved again because they decide to lock them up because it would be too easy to solve every plot point. Um, is 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 the is, is my very cynical interpretation of of time turners?
1: Fair enough. Uh, I, you know I don't actually dis. Well, so I actually kind of don't necessarily. Like that logic in a weird way. Um, but what I do um, uh, what I do want to say, like I like I think in the instance of its use in the third book, The time turner is actually really well done because it it like, you know, you go through the whole process and it sets it all up and there's all these questions and then you go through it again with the time turner. And I think that kind of thing can be, uh, you know, can be a a compelling way to tell a story. And those perspective shifts essentially are are cool. Um, So, So I don't think it does a good job of, you know, like. That's just the instance of how it gets used in that m- slice of the story, I think is fine. But then, I think you're right in that the greater context of the world, yeah, time so, turns so to make no fucking sense.
0: I don't have a problem, per se, with Harry Potter being sent back in time, and that kind of, like, is a driving piece of the narrative. I have a problem that's a piece of everyday technology that a student was using to study more. Like, that's like a level of commonality that's so boggling that it didn't, you know, make it out, like, and it's 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 so obviously applicable to a thousand other situations that it could solve, like, all these problems, like, you know, like, frankly, I think it could have been better handled by, like, you know, oh, we, like, there's, like, one Time Turner, and we're going to use it on you, Harry Potter, because... You're important, and the plot says we need to. Instead of like we gave one to Hermione so she could take more classes, it's like why didn't you give the one to everyone that ever has to do every anything so they can redo things if things go to shit? Um, um,
1: yeah, um, you know, I
0: I I also like I said I also have a general disdain for Harry Potter. Um, I read. All of the books, except for the last one, to prove that I, <laughs> out of spite, essentially. Um, I didn't wow. I didn't like them on concept, and people were like, how can you say you don't like them if you've never read them? And I said, fine. And I read all of them, except for the last one, and said, see, I care so little for this trash that I don't even need to read the last one.
1: I just, uh, hold on a second, I really need to, what do you, what, what about the concept do you not like? Oh, I just, I always thought it was kind of like, on on face
0: the reason I didn't like it is because I was already reading like, when the first ones came out, I was already reading like Ari Salvatore, and I was like, oh man, this like deep, and like it looked like it was a kitty book, um, and then it was a kiddie book, so I felt vindicated when I read the first couple books, um, you know, it's very pop, you know, I was like, ah, why does this get so much attention when Drizzard Dorden is, is is the best, um, <laughs> oh my god, yeah, so you know, uh, well done. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I don't have to say that I'm proud of that, but, you know, that's, I, I just, I just never thought that Harry Potter was, was particularly unique, and I don't think, I, I've got some other issues, I could probably talk for a while about Harry Potter, and why I don't like it, but I also don't want to devote that many brain cells to it,
1: um, I am very I this is mind-boggling. I, I we've never had this conversation before so I've never kind of encountered this yeah. side but it's this is why which is why it's so interesting. Yep. I I guess because I don't actually like Harry I I was in a very similar headspace. I was reading uh of course uh Magic the Gathering novelizations which were amazing by the way. The Odyssey saga, everyone shout out. Yep, they were really good. Uh Kamal Pitfighter, mm greatest character and then the onslaught saga was okay, but um and then uh uh yeah when did you did you read Lord of the Rings like around that age? Yes. That's around yeah, when yeah. I read Lord of the well, Rings.
0: Well so I read I read, I read Hobbit through Lord of the Rings over a very long time because Oh uh, okay. Because I found Lord of the Rings very hard to read. I'm Oh, me too. I actually if, kind if, of hate those. Yeah. You know, we're going to bring them all out. I'm going to put General Tolkien on blast. Are you ready? Are you ready,
1: General <laughs> Tolkien? I'm going to put you on fucking blast. The Hobbit book is worse than the Hobbit movies. The Hobbit movies are way better. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah! Get so, wrecked. Get wrecked. You so, know, no, I I'm going to disagree with triggered you. Triggered so think, many people. <laughs> I think
0: the only good Lord of the Rings book is The Hobbit. Like, Oof. the rest of them are just... Wit- like, they are great, like, reference books. Kind of, like... Tolkien was a great world builder. I don't think he was a great storyteller. But I really, yeah, I. I really like the Hobbit as a book. Um, I never saw the second and third Hobbit movies because um, I didn't. Because you're care.
1: awful, and they're amazing,
0: and you're awful
1: for not liking them. No. I.
0: <laughs> so, so part of the reason I appreciated the Hobbit is is it's a lighthearted adventure, and the movies are exactly not that, right? Like I, I think, I think doing the Hobbit after Lord of the Rings was always going to be a Kind of, uh, a kind of questionable decision because there's a but you, the baggage that the Hobbit has coming out after the Lord of the Rings, is really hard to deal with, right? Like, the Hobbit by its nature is a much more lighthearted book, but the Lord of the Ring novels and the movies are so epic that it's hard to kind of roll that back, and especially things like the characterization of Gollum, right? He's kind of like a two-bit character in the book, but you can't yeah. roll back his characterization all the way in in the movie because. The Fans of The Hobbit have already watched Lord of the Rings. That's why they're going to see The Hobbit, ostensibly, and so I think the tone of the movies mismatches the book because it's more a Lord of the Rings prequel than it is a Hobbit adaptation.
1: Yeah, and, you sense. know, and I, I I definitely agree with you. And I, a big part of this uh, kind of comes down um, to me just on the on the like the perspective of like. I like big, big, huge, epic stuff, so turning The Hobbit, which is kind of a small, lighthearted, rompy adventure story into the big, epic, you know, massive stakes through the fucking roof, right, um, of uh, uh, of the movie that they turned it into. I thought that I, – I, I very much appreciated that. I also really like Peter Jackson. I think Peter Jackson is awesome. Peter Jackson kind of lives in this, like, Zack Snyder world for me where, like, I just kind you of the love the likes him. Well, I mean, hey, first of all, everybody loves The Lord of the Rings, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you no, get, I just, like,
0: cheap the, yeah. Like, Peter
1: Jackson is, wor- like, worth so much to – he is the George Lucas, right? I've heard right, this, yeah. Of – I really? Have I made this case to you before? I don't know
0: if you have, but I've heard similar things like – People, there were enough people around when he was making Lord of the Rings to stop him from being super terrible. Now, oh, no, 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 okay. no, no,
1: no, 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 no. That's not what I mean. I mean in the sense that he dramatically changed to movie making forever, right? Because of the way that those Lord of the Rings, you know, these Lord of the Rings movies were made, you know, one, two, three, all back to back Right, they came out, you know, two thousand one, two thousand two, two thousand three. Right, you know, same cast, all of this other kind of stuff. Right, it wasn't one of those things where, well, let's see how good it does. Maybe we'll make a sequel, which is like, you know, what happened to the Batman movies, and we're gonna recast, you know, we're gonna recast Batman twice and all new, you know, all of this other kind of stuff. Right, um, that franchise building that he did in the Lord of the Rings is the reason that everything's a remake or a prequel or a whatever. Right, because it it. it it wet everyone's appetite for this. I mean, the movies are fantastic, right? These movies are amazing, uh, but uh, their place in like the larger history is the same place as like Star Wars, right? Where you kind of transition from, you know, the mid '70s, oh, Raging Bull, Martin Scorsese, right, to right big producer-driven, powerful, blockbustery kinds of movies, uh, and so and so. Uh, but but anyway. Peter Jackson, I think, is a great director. And he's a director with a lot of vision, you know what I mean? Like, when I look at a Peter Jackson movie, I can tell that it is a Peter Jackson movie. Um, And I think just the way he composes scenes, and I love these sweeping camera shots all across New Zealand. No one – everyone tries to do those, but no one quite gets them down. Um, And it just fascinates me. I will will be watching Peter Jackson movies, and I expect I will be loving them for the rest of my fucking life. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so to,
0: to just finish out my point from earlier, the way I have heard that Peter Jackson is like George Lucas is, um, you know, during Lord of the Rings, he had enough kind of other people around that were willing to, to kind of, like, rein him in, um, and then that stopped happening with the prequels, as with happened with George Lucas, and as with George Lucas, no one likes the prequels except for you. Um although i <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know it's funny actually because uh, i think the hobbit movies suffer from a very similar thing of like the lord of the rings movies were so it's li- i mean in the same way that i'm comparing peter jackson and george lucas right for how groundbreaking their movies are that's exactly you're never going to be able to bat a thousand on movies like that again you know what i mean like and that the the distance fifteen years uh in the case of Lord of the Rings, uh twenty in the case of uh well, I guess it was a little bit more like fifteen. Um in the case of the Star Wars prequels, right? Like it just kind of builds up so much hype that when it's not the same or just a little bit worse, it feels awful and just terrible and just garbage in comparison.
0: Yeah, no, I, I feel that. Um, although, I will say that I am looking forward to J.J. J. Abrams directing The Cimmerillion. Um, uh, is
1: that a thing, that's really? a, No,
0: it's that, a joke, right? Like, oh, right, thank like God, J. 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 because <laughs>
1: I was about to flip a fucking... I was about to blow a gasket. <laughs> no, no, that, that, that's, that's me
0: essentially being like, you know, J.J. Abrams directed The Force Awakens. Gotcha. You know, <laughs> so the next Lord of the... Never mind, I'll stop making jokes. Um, uh, But...
1: um, I, I You know, I would not put that past, like... Hollywood, you know. <laughs> though I do, though I do remember reading an article. I'm um, reading an article that was in my Twitter that was like, J.J. Abrams isn't going to be making uh, any. Uh, you know, he's not going to be making any like big sci-fi franchise movies anymore. And the caption from the Twitter uh, retweet was essentially, uh, you know, man decides to quit the money making, the the money printing business after he's printed himself all the money. Like, you know. <laughs> Which I get that, you know, I get that. I mean, Joss Whedon kind of did the same thing where, uh, after those two Avengers movies, so. Yeah, so, I... Anyway, sorry. Yeah. 20, 20 minutes of, uh, anyway. I... That well, was your week, yes. what did you play? <laughs>
0: so, uh, a couple things, couple things for my week um that I want to, uh, that I want to go into before we run out of time. Um, I, uh, saw John Wick again, um... Oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, we, we uh, Actually, a uh, friend of the show, Mark, came into the city yesterday, and John Wick 2 comes out in a couple weeks. So we're like, Mark, have you ever seen John Wick? And he was like, no. We were like, we're watching John Wick. So we watched John Wick again, and um, I actually, I, I, I was glad I watched it a second time just so, one, it's fresh in my mind for when John Wick 2 comes out, and two, um, I noticed some things the second time around that I hadn't really thought about the first time around. Like, the lighting in that movie is kind of spectacular. Like, the way that, like, they, they play with colors. Um, mm-hmm. also the second... Especially in that, in that club scene, right? The club I scene... I know exactly what you're talking well, there, about. Well, there's the club scene. There, there, yes, the club scene is, is one of the better parts, too. But, like, even early on, there's there's this... I can't forget exactly what it was, but there's a scene where he's, like, totally cast in blue. Uh, where Keanu Reeves is, to, is totally cast in blue, and it, it's, it's great. Um... But yes, um, and the uh, and the other thing is that I, you know, I, I realized that the like the subtitles I think needed like the like the I, I, re- I remembered how much I disliked the subtitles. I don't think that they worked right. Um, I, I thought they I thought they made an effort, but I, I think ultimately it kind of failed, and that makes me sad. Um, but uh, I did I do enjoy uh, that movie.
1: Okay. Fair enough, I suppose. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I enjoy that movie. uh, I enjoy that movie a lot. I enjoy that movie a lot, coming back and thinking about it. But I definitely agree with you about the lighting point. Especially because... um, So... um, What's a good uh, uh, example of this? So there is a cinematographer that film people love to, like... They just, like, love to go crazy about and jack off to and his name is roger deacons this guy uh, um do you know this guy um is he the one doing the camera work or is he the principal photographer for blade runner 2020 he is the cinematographer yeah he's the cinematographer for blade runner 2049 um the, so actually, to put this in relief, so the guy that directed Denis Villeneuve, who I've talked about a lot on the podcast, uh, because his first two big movies, Prisoners and Sicario, are just mind-blowingly good. They're both shot by Roger Deakins, right? And then Arrival was not, which is Honestly, a big part of the reason why I think I liked Arrival less. Like, why I thought Arrival wasn't as good. Um, because it just, like, wasn't as, like... You know, Roger Deakins, for instance, uh, you know, Prisoners is a movie all about... Uh, you know, it starts with these little girls getting kidnapped. Uh, and it's kind of like a thriller. Uh, and there's a whole lot to it. Like, there's a ton in that, in that movie. But there's this one shot, and it was like, you know, like some the, the artsy film school... Uh, it's called Film School Rejects. It's like a big publisher uh or like online it's kind of like polygon or you know but for like for movies they said the best shot of that year was it was a very slow zoom into a tree with like a really creepy score behind it and it's like he thinks of these weird things that are really meaningful in the context of the movie i'm sure you're like what a zoom into a tree what does that mean right kind of thing um he did skyfall in 2012 and in Skyfall, there's that fight in China, if you remember, with, with uh, uh, I in don't Shanghai. Think you've seen Skyfall. Oh, man! Wow, well, this whole point is about to be lost. But basically, uh, there's this one fight in Skyfall, uh, and this is just a testament to how good Roger Deakins is. There's this one fight in Skyfall, and it's in it's in a skyscraper. It's in an empty skyscraper. Um, and the skyscraper is, is, like, under construction and there's, like, a sniper and he's sniping somebody in another building or whatever. James Bond is in there trying to stop this sniping from happening, right? But because that skyscraper is doesn't have any electrical or whatever and all of the windows and everything are open uh, to the rest of the city, it's lit entirely by, like, the big advert, like, the Times Square kind of, like, ads or whatever. And they're changing and the colors are changing across the fight and it changes how the fight progresses because of the colors changing Um, John Wick gets all of its cinematography. It felt like from like that five minute stretch of skyfall. (laughs) And, uh, and so I wanted to shout that out because I do remember noticing that the last time I watched it, uh, the last time I watched John Wick. So I, the reason I know about Roger
0: Deakins is my, my brother was telling, he's going to kill me because I can't remember the name of this, this thing, but the original Blade Runner was shot with like a certain type of lens, and Roger Deakins is not using that type of lens, and people are mad about it.
1: Um, it's like, oh my god, that sounds. <laughs> I know, I know people. I I'm friends with you know, uh, obviously like living in LA with like film friends. I know people who would make that exact argument. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 it, so my. my <laughs>
0: I. I have to ask him because I'm. I'm. It's. It's gonna drive me crazy. He's gonna kill me. But um, it's like it's the the lens does affect how the movie looks in the general case. I think, I think one of the biggest things is that the shots are wider and you get more distortion towards the edge. Um, but he 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 also thinks it's a crappy argument. But like he was he was we had a long talk about the the differences between those types of lenses, and now I can't remember it at all, and I feel really shitty. Um, (laughs) um, But I'll put put a link in the description to something about it. Um, Probably someone smarter than me that can explain the actual differences. But the last thing I did this week, before we run out of time, is I played in the For Honor beta. Um, uh, I do want to talk about that for the remaining minute. Um, That game is a lot of fun, but it's super, super difficult. Um, And I'm not... Like, it's... I'm hopeful that I can get into it, but the, it, it's got a couple of like weird, like um, weird issues that I'm not quite sure how to solve. That I, I'm not sure if it's a systematic problem with the game, or if I just haven't figured out how to deal with them yet. Like, well, one thing that is the game's problem is it uses peer-to-peer, and so um, the connections drop all the time, and that's an internet connection is terrible. Um, but the bigger thing is stuff like. The faster classes seem like they can just run away and not deal with you, and that feels like a like a bad balancing, and I don't know, like, and that's one of those things where I'm like, you know, maybe I can figure out how to deal with that, or maybe you just can't, like, I, I don't know how I'm supposed to deal with that, um, and it's aggravating, um, but uh, uh the, I, I think a lot of it's going to come down to what ends up being, like, the marquee mode. Um, which seems to be they want it to be Dominion, but I know a lot of people online really are enjoying the, the dual modes. So we'll see how that turns out. Um, but the game is surprisingly complex for, for what it is, or maybe not surpri- Like It's got a lot more depth to it than I expected it to. It's got um, straight like combo chains like a fighting game. It's got, it's got a lot of different mechanics to it that give it a lot of depth, and I'm, I'm really excited to, to, to see it come out. And uh, I, th- I think playing in the beta may have solidified a, a pre-order from me. Um, I haven't
1: decided yet, but it's uh, it's cool. Um, well, that that is pretty cool. I signed up for the four honor beta, but I did not get an invite, so uh,
0: uh, sorry, sucks. Um, <laughs> I have nothing
1: to add. Um, anything else you wanted to talk about? No, uh, though I am actually super excited for uh, this week on Wednesday. Finally. Uh, we are back in business with Hell's Rebels. I encourage everyone to tune in. This is a great jumping on point uh, for any new listeners who, uh, who want to see me talk a whole lot because next week I'm going to have so many things. I've been like, it's been two months. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm super jazzed to, to, get back, uh, to get back into the swing of things. Um, but that's it. Yeah, I'm good to go. Um, all right. If you want to uh, email
0: us and tell us what you think about um, Harry Potter or uh crowdfunding you can email us at some games at gmail.com you can uh uh watch us on twitch.tv slash some derps play games you can follow us on twitter on our new show account at some derps thank you to um our new publicity manager i guess alex Zau, for setting that up um you will remember him from the uh what was what was that civil war civil war the, we did the civil war episode, episode without yeah uh, uh you could follow us individually on twitter Um, you can follow our Facebook page. You can do all the things you want to do. Rate us on iTunes and and all that good stuff. Um, links will be in the description. Um, but I think that's it. Did you have anything else you wanted to pimp, buddy? Nope. I'm good to go. Um, until next time, dear listeners.
1: Until next time, loyal listeners.